to our podcast from the Ark Insider. I'm Karen Allen and I'm speaking to you from Johannesburg. Tara O'Connor, my co-presenter, is the Managing Director of Ark, the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm, Africa Risk Consulting, and she joins us from France. The Ark Insider aims to offer some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation to stimulate ideas amongst those who live, work and breathe African affairs touch on some of the events that have been in the news, as well as ongoing topics of interest. Good to be speaking to you again, Tara. It's our 16th podcast. We've come of age. I can hear the birds in the background enjoying it too. How are things over your side? (laughs) Yes, very good to speak to you. And unfortunately, the birds are still very noisy, but um, perhaps a bit quieter now as we move into autumn with autumn leaves falling. And it's a lovely time of year here. Well, you know, this is not a location constrained podcast. So, you know, there will be other background sounds in due course as we mature, I'm sure. Well, look, Tom, we've got a fascinating guest on the podcast today, haven't we? We've got Lord Peter Hayne, the British Labour peer who grew up in South Africa. He's an anti-apartheid activist, a social commentator and a prolific author with more than 20 books to his name. He's got another one that's just been published, one of the reasons we're going to be talking to him, and that puts the issue of rhino poaching and corruption centre stage. More on that later. But first, Tara, let's take a look at some of the stories which have been in the news since our last podcast. Now, next, we turn to these shocking wildfires on the US West Coast. We know at least seven people have died and tens of thousands of people have had to evacuate. Tonight, the family of a Rwandan government critic who somehow ended up in the hands of police in Kigali believes that he was kidnapped following a trip to Dubai. Paul Musisa Bagina denies accusations of sponsoring terrorism in his homeland. Human rights icon and uh, former president Nelson Mandela's lawyer George Bezos has died. Uh, the celebrated 92-year-old uh, represented many struggle heroes, uh, including the Ravonia trial. A leading scientist has warned that the UK is on the edge of losing control of coronavirus as infections rise. Click stores have been targeted by EFF protests today, some of which turned violent. That's after the retailer ran an advert describing black women's hair as dry and damaged and white women's hair as normal. Well, um, Tara, let's pick up, if we may, on that last story. The South African pharmacy chain Clicks has been the target of violent attacks by protesters after a shampoo advert was construed as racist by appearing to favour white Caucasian hair over black African hair. It does strike me, Tara, as absolutely incredible that the marketing department didn't foresee that in a country where race is such a combustive issue, there wouldn't be some kind of outcry to this ad. It had echoes, really, of a a similar gaffe, you might remember, by the clothing line H&M, which fell into a similar trap during an advertising campaign in 2018. What was particularly striking about the Click story at the moment was a tweet, in fact, that one of our previous guests on the podcast, advocate Tuli Madonsela, posted. She basically condemned the violence against Clicks, though she didn't condone the racial messaging in the ad, and questioned whether, and I quote, is preventing people from working and getting their meds peaceful. And she really did lay in online to the EFF, the red berries of the economic freedom fighters who questioned and she questioned whether the largely male EFF was best placed to represent black women's interests in this matter. Well, not surprisingly, she received a barrage of of verbal abuse, which became very personal. 
Twitter, I have to say, can be seriously poisonous at times. Really, the fact that the marketing department did not see it is very much the point, I think. It's this sort of invisibility of this sort of everyday ra- everyday racism that uh, that the advert represents and which has been highlighted by the Black Lives Matter movement so much around Europe uh, and in the US. No, it's true. And, you know, again, in, in one of her tweets, it's interesting that Thule was talking about sort of um, unconscious bias. I'm slightly incredulous um, that, you know, a company which has got an entirely black marketing department, as I understand, would they not have seen this coming? I spoke about this to a friend only yesterday. And one of the comments that she made was at the end of it is is something that is very much uh, worldwide in the Black Lives Matter movement now, is that, you know, um, I am not going to coach you or absolve you from culpability on this basic failure. It is up to you, the marketing department, the corporate, that must do the work to find out about what racism looks and feels like to people and to correct the behaviour. Yeah, absolutely. Moving swiftly on, other stories? Yes. Actually, the story to catch my eye, particularly this week, um, was actually the acceleration of economic nationalism in Zambia, which is the country, in, as you know, I grew up in. And firstly, as uh, the mines minister there has announced plans to actually buy a controlling stake in a mining giant, Glencore, uh, in its copper belt mine, uh, and it's a mine with which the government has been in dispute. Um, so it's looking to actually now buy and operating a majority stake and to become an and for the government for the state to become an operator in future mining projects. The second thing that happened in Zambia was that the government sacked a very well-respected, knowledgeable central bank governor and actually replaced him with someone who is regarded widely regarded as unqualified for the job in scenes very reminiscent of Zuma sacking uh, his finance minister in a few years ago. Absolutely. And of course, you know, you mentioned Zuma in South Africa and his finance minister, Tito Mbweni, um, got his knuckles wrapped over the past couple of weeks uh, tweeting in protest at the sacking of uh, Zambia's, as you say, very well qualified bank chief. He's, he's not retracted it. I think a lot of people were very much behind what Tito Mbweni was saying. Now Zambia's basically being plunged into the worst recession for 20 years. Absolutely. It has to be said that under uh, under Edgar Lungu and the Patriotic Front, the economy has has literally halved uh, in value. And now with COVID-19, it's actually going to face a further 5% contract, contraction, according to the IMF. And so while Ramaphosa did take uh, Tito Mboweni to task over his comments, he was Tito Mboweni was largely right. This move is this move is actually symptomatic of taking Zambia, you know, reversing reforms that have been in place for 30 years, and those reforms that were entered into 30 years ago actually put Zambia onto a fast track of of rapid economic growth, and we're talking about a sustained, continuous um, economic expansion that were uh, were were the reforms. And the key issue here, Tara, isn't it, is about maintaining the independence of the central bank, not having a central bank that can simply print money, something that a lot of people are saying the Zambians need 
want to do given the fact there are elections coming up that's exactly it i think all of this control uh, taking control of the engine of the economy which is mining and now taking the control of what people might call the printing presses the ability to print money uh, directly is all about the elections which are happening in uh, uh, in august 2012 uh, and it seems that um, that edgar lungu is going to stop at nothing uh, to ensure that he wins those elections. Tara, we watch with interest. I know a subject very close to your heart. As you say, you grew up in Zambia. We will be revisiting that again, I think, in the, in the weeks and, and months ahead. You're listening to The Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast with Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Our guest on the podcast this week is a South African-born British peer who's been a committed supporter of the country's anti-apartheid movement, a member of the British Parliament and a cabinet minister in two Labour administrations. He's been a former chair of the UN Security Council, as well as being a prolific writer and social commentator. I'm, of course, talking about Lord Peter Hayne, Labour peer with five decades of political service behind him. Lord Hayne, welcome to The Ark Insider. Thanks very much, Karen. Peter, you grew up in South Africa. You're very much a well-known face here. You grew up in South Africa until your parents were forced into exile in the mid-60s. But as a family, as as an individual in your own right, you continue to fight the scourge of racial segregation, apartheid here in South Africa from overseas. When you visit South Africa now, and you do have still very close connections here, how struck are you by the economic racial divide that still persists? Well, it's as day and night compared with apartheid. If apartheid was the night, the evil, most institutionalized system of racism the world has ever known, then the joy has been the daytime following the replacement of apartheid with a post-apartheid society, especially under Nelson Mandela. So the first point I always make is for those who criticize South Africa today, and I'm one of the critics, but I'm also a supporter, just pause to remember what it was like with a police state and the horror of racism on that grand forensic institutionalized scale where everything part of your life from sport to uh, sex to personal relations, to the economy, to jobs, to health, to schools, where you live, the whole lot uh, was segregated according to whether you're white or you weren't white. Uh, So the replacement of that system by a non-racial democracy is a massive achievement. And there've been big achievements since 1994 when Nelson Mandela took power. But the terrible governance under President Zuma especially, the 10 years of Zuma state capture, as it came to be called, corruption, and not just corruption, which was spreading and still is like a cancer through the whole of South African governance, but also, and in my view equally important, is the cronyism that put people in positions of public administration Mm. right through the system who are incompetent, lazy, and venal as part of Zuma's grab on the country his, uh, so that his mates could cry, climb on the gravy train and, he, and they would continue to support him. That has left a terrible legacy that the President Ramaphosa is trying to grapple with now. 
Exactly. And Peter, we'll talk a lot more about corruption later on. Um, but just to pick up on, on one of the points, expectations were raised so high. And I remember speaking to Mac Maharaj, was a well-known struggle icon. At one point, he had the unenviable task of being Jacob Zuma's spokesman, um, didn't do it for very long. And he said one of the biggest mistakes they made as a, a, a fledgling government was to raise expectations so high and they simply were not able to deliver at the speed. Now, when you look at race, which is still such a polarising issue and how it gets captured, driven, shaped by parties, for example, such as the Economic Freedom Fighters, EFF, that's Julius Malema, 44 seats in, in Parliament, they can still push a nationalist agenda and be able to tap into that racial mistrust, which still so many people have. And the ANC does it as well. Yes. And Nelson Mandela must be turning in his grave because of it, because he was very clear that South Africa's future was as a non-racial antidote to the racist apartheid system. But the two points to make about this before we delve into the thickets. First of all, this is a legacy, not just of decades of racist domination and oppression, but going back centuries. And, you know, change, when I was a teenager, I thought you could change things overnight. You can't. You can change some things quickly. Uh, and I, I helped to do so as a teenager in, in stopping all white South African sports tours in 1969-70. But change takes a long time. My dad used to say to me when I was a young teenager beginning to understand politics, he used to say to me, Peter, if change was easy, it would have happened a long time ago. Uh, it's quite a mm. profound thing to say uh, as, a, as a sort of almost uh, uh, adage. Um, but... So change is hard. You've got this terrible apartheid legacy of poverty, of racism, of an economy that has left deep, deep scars. The worst one of them is not just unemployment, though that's the most visible, it's actually lack of skills. The other point, Karen, is government is hard. I was 12 years of a government minister in Britain with a long-established system of uh, civil, uh, professional civil service and a, one of the richest countries in the world, and a long-established system of democracy of a sort. And that was hard to get anything delivered through the system. Yeah. So I think it's important to just bear that in mind when you raise expectations, which is your, the start of this point in this conversation, you raise expectations high, and they were always going to be raised high because Mandela was... Uh, the most popular global leader in the world. And he offered such hope. And the, the evil that South Africa turned its back on offered such promise. It was almost impossible to realize the Mandela miracle because it wasn't a miracle and it was never going to be. So what do you tell potential investors when they look at that skills deficit? They look at the Red Berets preaching violence and anti-white slogans. They look at conversations about nationalisation. They look at Cyril Ramaphosa struggling to maintain control in his own party. What do you say then to them to, to be able to keep faith and to keep on considering South Africa as a, an investment destination? 
South Africa still remains, in my view, the most attractive inward investment destination in Africa. It has a system of the rule of law and financial and business regulation, a constitutional court that overturns the president, and not many countries in Africa or indeed the world where that happens. Yeah. Uh, and there's lots of reasons why there's an entrepreneurial spirit, a record of entrepreneurialism and success, uh, which needs to be unleashed again and is in a sense dormant at the present time. If South Africa, uh, if South Africa can reestablish confidence in its governance, then I think um, inward investment will pour in and the economy will lift off and the skills gap will start to be addressed. But it's not going to happen overnight. Um, I think you were you made a submission yourself to the uh, to the Zondo Commission, I believe. I wonder if you wouldn't talk us through that. I did. The Zondo Commission, of course, uh, is the commission looking into corruption and state capture, principally under President Zuma, headed by Judge Zondo of the Constitutional Court. And I was invited to give evidence specifically on the international dimension to the state capture and corruption under Zuma and his uh, conspirators, the business uh, uh, tycoons, the Gupta brothers. And uh, what struck me when I was asked to expose this in the British Parliament in 2017, 2018, and did so using parliamentary privilege, that what struck me about that was the debate and the exposures by brave investigative journalists had all been within the country focused on the internal corruption. But actually what was also going on is the Zoomers and the Guptas were smuggling their billions of rand, hundreds of millions of pounds and dollars out of the country through the international banking system with the connivance of banks through my named in the British Parliament and again in the Zondo Commission, such as HSBC, such as Standard Chartered, such as particularly the Bank of Baroda. And I found it very interesting that um, Standard Chartered, having been shown my submission with all the detail of how this happened and the digital process that went on as this money left South African banks uh, through principally these three international banks, Bank of Baroda, Standard Chartered and HSBC, went into their branches in Dubai and Hong Kong in the main, and then disappeared, though leaving a digital footprint, which is the important point I made to the Zondo Commission, you can track this money down. Mm. Um, and, and the international banks were saying when they came to see me, when I named them sort of uh, wanting, you know, pleading excuses and so on, uh, they were, Standard Chartered actually said in their rebuttal to my evidence to Zondo, but our branch, the Standard, Char the Standard Chartered branch in Dubai has got nothing to do with us in Johannesburg. And, and I think the international corporate system is just as culpable as those who were part of the corruption under Zuma and, and the Guptas, uh, as, as the domestic corporations were. Do, do you think, Peter, the commission will... will turn up with anything? Do you think it will have effectively make, made a difference? I mean, there's still pressure for Zuma to appear. There's been all sorts of technical shenanigans going on that have prevented that. Um, people say the commissions come and go. They don't really make a huge amount of difference. Do you think this one will be different? Do you think this will achieve something? Some commissions are set up to, in a sense, move the show sideways 
into a deliberative, judicial, long process, which everybody loses interest in after a while. And, and Zondo was supposed to report a few months after I gave evidence last November and actually has been extended because there's a lot to look at. I hope, because I think they've got really good people, including Judge Zondo, in it, really, really good people who want to uh, get to the truth and want to provide the evidence for the South African public and indeed the world to see and the, the guilty to be named and nailed. But it really depends at the end of the day whether prosecutions follow. Now, there have been some prosecutions, but the National Prosecution Authority, along with other key state agencies, have been so polluted by the Zuma's uh, Gupta corruption and their place people in, for example, the National Prosecuting Agency, yeah. that the, the new heads of it, in, in, including the director, um, who, who, who's a fantastic woman with a, a great record in, in The Hague, in, in yeah, the Shamila International. Yeah, Shamila, yeah, um, I've got total confidence in her, but she can't even trust all the people in the NPA still. South Africa has this going for it, amongst the many other things I mentioned, that it has an independent judiciary. That's not true of Zimbabwe, for example. It's not mm. true of a lot of countries in the world from Russia to uh, Eastern Europe, to the, the stands, to um, uh, elsewhere in Africa. This is not just an African problem, uh, corruption, but you do, you know, you have an independent judiciary, you have a lot of good people in it, including in the Zondo Commission, and I, I hope that um, good will come from it. You know, the broader issue of state corruption, really, Peter, has set the scene for your latest book. It's called The Rhino Conspiracy. And it takes a look at corruption, state-sponsored poaching and conflicted loyalties. Um, is it informed by the grand corruption drama being played out in South Africa at the moment? Yes, certainly it's recent history because it's set in the, uh, in the period around about from sort of the 2015 to the 2018 kind of period. And it came out of a visit to a South African safari park called Tula Tula, a marvellous uh, safari park in KwaZulu-Natal near Richards Bay, whose owner wrote this memorable book, The Elephant Whisperer, and seeing two rhinos there and then having our game rangers guiding us, pointing out the two armed guards uh, sitting out of sight uh, until we, were, we as tourists were pointed out where they, they were and realizing that, and hearing from the rangers that actually it's a war zone in, the, in safari parks. And then realizing when I researched afterwards that actually, although poaching on the ground is horror, horrible in this in regal species, the rhino, and this is true of elephants and a lot of other wildlife, are, are being exterminated at a rate near to extinction. Actually, what's powering that poaching are international crime syndicates on a par with drug syndicates and yeah. people trafficking syndicates and corrupt politicians. It's interesting you mentioned KwaZulu-Natal. I've just come back from the Kruger in the past few days and I didn't see a single rhino, neither did I see any obvious signs of anti-poaching activity uh, of any guards or any kind of um, security in place. 
And, you know, Tara and I were talking about the impact of, of COVID-19 and the revenue losses, which are substantial to the wildlife parks, and whether that's going to have a knock-on effect on poaching. Can we expect to see it spike? Well, COVID has cast a shadow over everything, but I worry about the future of South Africa's safari parks because they're terribly important to the economy and they're getting no revenue at the moment. Uh, yes, poaching has gone down, apparently, um, for the obvious reasons at every level of activity, including quite a lot of crime has gone down. But um, it's still going to be there until the, the roots of, in this case, those who purchase the powder from rhino tusks when it's ground down uh, and uh, use it for aphrodisiacs, yeah. obscene and drug substitutes and so on, until those consumers stop this, these obscene habits, they are paying for the corruption and yeah. fueling the, the trade, the, the crime that is actually going to result in the extinction of species like the rhino. And Peter, is there much being done to uh, suppress that demand side um, for for this? I mean, we don't see uh, any advertising or any countermeasures actually t taken to suppress the demand side in China or in Hong Kong or Vietnam, do we? Well, China's taken some action uh, in the last few years to, to, to sort of declare that it's not a good thing. Um, and I think the Vietnamese authorities might have recently done something similar. But the truth is that a blind eye is still turned to it by the authorities, probably for backhanders uh, along, along the route. And in my thriller, I expose uh, exactly how this is done. So that's The Rhino Conspiracy, uh, and it's going to be published by Jonathan Ball in October in South Africa and distributed across Africa for anyone interested in this side of the pond and out uh, in the next uh, few days uh, over your side of the pond, um, Tara and Peter. And I'm looking forward to uh, to reading it, Peter. And uh, and when 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 next we meet, I shall be presenting you with my copy for a signature, please. It'll be with pleasure, and I, I hope you enjoy it. It's published in Britain and uh, Europe by Muswell Press. And Peter, just before we go, we ask all of our guests on the podcast um, just one final question, which is a what have you know lockdown and uh, the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic has had an impact on all of our lives? What have you learned about yourself in this particularly uh, traumatic uh, um, time? An ability to survive on Zoom yes. and, and other online yeah. uh, channels for communication, both video and uh, audio. And do you think home working works? Just a, a comment. I mean, everyone's talking over here about Netflix and the. I think it's the the, the CEO or the president of Netflix, um, the broadcast platform, saying there are absolutely no benefits to home working because you can't exchange ideas face to face. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. I mean, it's a very poor substitute for personal engagement. Actually, my experience, whether it's, you know, at a very high level negotiating the peace settlement of 2007 brought the bitter old enemies into power to share government in Northern Ireland, or whether it's um, involved in business things or political things or or wider things of life, actually seeing people relating to the person you're in front of 
is crucial. Digital technology does not replace personal chemistry. There's just no way that that can be true. Lord Peter Hain, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been really interesting, really fascinating, and and my goodness, a, a, a very very well lived life, and and many more books as well in the pipeline. I should imagine.、Uh, yes, there there may well be. In fact, I've. Just signed a contract with Jonathan Ball to write something about my life in South Africa from boyhood to fighting corruption. Great, thank you so much. Really good to talk to you. Thank you very much, Peter, and for a、uh, a great contribution to our podcast. And we look forward to、uh, inviting you back for our when your next book is out. Be delighted, and keep up the good work with Africa Risk Consulting, Tara. You've been listening to the Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, and Tara O'Connor. Thanks for joining us. If you're interested, Tara's team at Ark produces a daily chronology of events as well as reports and briefings about the region. You can sign up for these at info@africariskconsulting—that's at all one word.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address, and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now.